Father in heaven, we want to know Jesus. Lord, we long to know him. Please take low thoughts of Jesus from our minds this morning. Fill us with the spirit of Christ and all his greatness. Increase our capacity to be satisfied in him. Where we are weak, reveal to us Jesus. Focus our attention and our affections on the truth and beauty of your all-glorious Son. Please be strong in my weakness this morning. Father, please fill me with your spirit now that I may speak your word with boldness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Wow, I didn't think there'd be that many people here even without the pastor. <laughs> uh, well, I was saved when I was 19 years old. I knew what I was saved from, but I spent the next 20-something years trying to figure out what I was saved to in this world, other than dying and going to heaven. So if I could help you all to take a shortcut to finding that, it would make me very happy, because I spent my whole life trying to just do just that. So if you have your Bible this morning, you can uh, turn with me to Colossians 1.15 for a while after Philippians and before 1st Thessalonians. The title this morning for my message is The Supremacy of Christ in All Things. I love to see magnificent things, don't you? I mean, we all have things in our lives that we marvel at, don't we? I mean, secular, physical things. For me, one of those things used to be what's called funny cars. Funny car is a drag racing car class, if any of you don't know that. A funny car has a handmade tubular frame and weighs around 2,000 pounds. It's covered with a one-piece fiberglass body that resembles a car on the street, and it's attached at the rear in the front of the car. It's powered by a hemi-based engine of less than 500 cubic inches, similar to the one in Larry's pickup truck. It's fueled by nitromethane mixed with methanol, and it uses 15 gallons to go one quarter of a mile. Funny cars produce around 10,000 horsepower. They achieve over 300 miles per hour in four seconds in a quarter mile. This year, one achieved 320 miles per hour in 3.9 seconds in 1,000 feet. They're so insanely powerful that an engine only lasts for a quick warm-up and a quarter mile, if the crew did their job right. When they go down the strip, it kind of reminds you of an extended, controlled explosion. And in the midst of all this insanity, is a human being in the cockpit that has six Gs of acceleration force on him, and he has to think clear enough to do dozens of things all at the same time while under this force in less than four seconds. Spectators like me are able to watch from less than 200 feet away, sometimes even 100 feet if you get a good seat. You couldn't even envision what it's like if you haven't been there to see it. The sound is deafening. You can't imagine how loud the sound is. It goes right through your stomach. It feels like somebody's punching you in the stomach. There's actually discomfort in your body from the intensity of the sound. 
It's so loud, it used to make me dizzy. I would say to myself, God's voice at Mount Sinai must have sounded something like this. And then I would say, foolishly, there is nothing in the world as amazing as this. And I'm telling you this because it's so ridiculous. Nothing as amazing as this? Really? Nothing but a man-made machine? It only impacts its tiny little immediate area? Not a god. If you push it over, someone has to come and set it back up on its wheels again. And we are all astonished with things like this on earth that are not worthy of all that glory that I just described. Like football, basketball, movies, celebrities, things that are so puny in the light of the big picture. We're going to take a look at the supremacy of Christ today. But don't think that I think that I've got them all figured out. I don't. I know just enough to numb my mind and be in absolute awe. We'll only just scratch the surface of his supremacy this morning. That's all we can do, since his supremacy is infinite. The knowledge of Christ's supremacy is way beyond words. We need to stand this morning in utter silence, speechless with wonder and awe, filled with reverence, and what A.W. Tozer calls breathless admiration for our Creator and our Redeemer. Then we'll be ready to talk about some of the things that make Him supreme. So with that said, I'll begin. One thing that blows my mind is that God simply spoke the universe into existence. How amazing is that? How do we sit in astonishment every day and think about that? It's just a, a fact that we normally accept and, and don't think a lot about. But that's something to be astonished about. We've become so numb to truths like that. Tozer used to say that Christians will talk about some deep, profound truth, and instead of falling on their faces in awe, they'll say, okay, uh, we settled that. Let's go get a Coke. And that, that triteness just should not be. Well, God didn't even need to speak the universe to speak to create the universe. That was for our benefit, so it could be included in his written word. Someone said the universe is just one of God's thoughts. So how big is it? Well, the Earth is a small planet in our solar system, which is about 7 billion miles across, which is a small part of our galaxy, the Milky Way. The Milky Way is a rather small galaxy that has over 200 billion stars in it, and it's about 600,000 trillion miles across. Now, when, when I talk about distances that big, it's, it's almost meaningless. Let's try and give it at least some meaning. How much is a trillion? I don't even want to think about our national debt. A trillion is almost incomprehensible. Let's work it out using units of time. We'll use seconds to figure this out. A million seconds is 13 days. A billion seconds is 31 years. 
Anyone have any guesses on how many a trillion seconds is? A trillion seconds is 31,688 years. A billion seconds is 13 days. A million seconds is 13 days. A billion seconds is 31 years. A trillion seconds is 31,688 years. Think about how much a trillion really is compared to a billion. If you can, without exploding your mind. I, I can't. I think we were meant to be that way. A trillion seconds is five times longer than the universe has even existed. Now that's amazing. Our little galaxy, the Milky Way, is 600,000 trillion miles across. That's really huge, isn't it? We're not talking about the whole universe that God holds in his hand, but our little galaxy. The only purpose there seems to be for the universe is to give us some kind of a weak, feeble idea of the size of God. I don't see any other purpose for it. We can't even comprehend the size of the Milky Way, let alone the universe. How could we ever even imagine the size of God? That's awesome. That should make our heads really hurt and fill us with the true definition of all, reverential fear. And speaking of awe and awesome, they're two of the most abused words that I hear today. That milkshake was awesome. That touchdown was awesome. Their house is awesome. Everything is awesome. But no, only Jesus Christ is awesome. Nothing else compares to him. And this galaxy of ours is one of perhaps 100 billion or more other galaxies, all of which Jesus Christ put into existence with the thought of his mind. What kind of power is that? That is magnificent. I think we were created to see magnificent things. The other day in the middle of the week, I was in New Cumberland and between appointments, and I wanted to find a quiet place to just do some work on this message. And I thought, I'll go down to the park at the dam and sit. It should be quiet there. And I went there and parked, and I couldn't believe my eyes. People were flocking there in the middle of the day on a weekday to see a dam that's three feet high. I couldn't believe my eyes. I mean, to me, it wasn't something that I would make a special trip to see. People are starved to see big things. The only problem is they're looking in the wrong places. We were created to want to see big, magnificent things. If we were not, we wouldn't have the faculties to appreciate our magnificent God. He wants us to marvel at him. The Apostle Paul, speaking of Christ's return, says in 2 Thessalonians 1, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. God wants us to marvel at him. Not that God needs us to marvel at him. That's where our happiness lies. We can't marvel, though, if we don't know him and his attributes. And if we worship him as different than he is, we're worshiping an idol, not the true God. We need to worship the supremacy of the true God only. To rejoice 
and relish in the beauty of the supremacy of God alone accounts for why we exist. It's also the solution to our struggle with sin. Seeing and enjoying his supremacy gives us the incentive and the motivation for change. Enjoying God is the soul's only satisfaction, which no rival pleasure can hope to compete with. But let's do some of that rejoicing and relishing now. Right now, I want us to focus all our attention on the title for this message, The Supremacy of Christ in All Things. So please read with me Colossians 1, starting at 15. We'll go to 17. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Wow. Wow. I'll say it backwards. Wow. What an amazing scripture. I just want us to dwell this morning on some of the things that are evidence of Jesus Christ's supremacy. And I think one of our greatest shortcomings is failing to see and recognize the supremacy of Christ in all things. Let's try to overcome that this morning. This morning I want to look at why it's important that we see Jesus' supremacy. And I want to look at some of the obstacles that prevent us from seeing him. And I want to examine how we might overcome some of these obstacles. So let's start by looking at some of the ways Jesus is supreme. And let's worship him in our hearts as we do that. Jesus is supreme as the God-man in John 1.14, which I think is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's statement is made all the more amazing when it's seen in the light of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Eternal, unchanging God became flesh and dwelt among us. Amazing. John doesn't say that the word became a man, although that's true. Nor does he say he became a human, or even that he took to himself a body. Again, both are true. Rather, the word became flesh, a strong, almost crude way of referring to human nature in its totality. True body, soul, spirit, will, and emotion. Think about it. This is so astonishing. When the word, when the eternal word, Jesus, once became flesh, he became flesh forever. After his earthly life, death, and resurrection, Jesus didn't divest himself of the flesh or cease to be a man. He's a man even now at the right hand of God the Father. He's also God. He will always be the God-man. Thus we might envision Jesus saying, I am now what I always was, God, or Word. I am now what I once was not, man, or flesh. 
I am now and forever will be both the God-man. Awesome, awesome, awesome. There are no words to describe how awesome. He is holy, 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 totally other than anything in this universe. Jesus is supreme as the lion and the lamb. Revelation 5, 5 and 6 tells us, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, a lion is admirable for its ferocious strength and its imperial-like appearance. A lamb is admirable for its meekness and servant-like provision of wool for our clothing and for its suitableness uh, for sacrifices. But even more admirable is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion. What makes Christ glorious, as Jonathan Edwards observed over 250 years ago, is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. We marvel at him because his uncompromising justice is tempered with mercy. His majesty is sweetened by meekness. The supremacy of God is not a simple thing. It's a coming together in one person of extremely diverse qualities. Jesus is supreme in his beauty. Pastor Terry often says about God's creation, the closer you look, the more amazed you will be. And it's kind of funny because he said that three times in his message last week. So if you look at the smallest parts of it through a powerful microscope or the largest bodies with a giant telescope, you'll discover an utterly amazing, highly complex, unexplainable, beautiful universe. I could talk for hours about God's beauty and creation. I think the beauty of creation is not just physical, but spiritual. We as human beings are very much limited to the physical realm in our thinking. I believe God gave us physical beauties so that we can comprehend spiritual beauties. I think it's one of the reasons why God gave us the arts. I believe the beauty of this creation and the beauty of God are in complete harmony. This physical world's sweetest and most charming beauty is its resemblance to spiritual beauty. Spiritual beauty is infinitely greater than physical because the physical beauties that we see are merely shadows or appetizers that lead us to the spiritual. Spiritual, yes. They're designed to lead us to God. We do not in this life have the organs to see God fully, so we need primers, so to speak, that lead us to God's beauty. To relish and rejoice in the beauty of God is partly why we exist. It's also part of the solution to our struggle with sin. Jesus is supreme in the value of his love. Jonathan Edwards says that Jesus' love is better than life because it's the love of a person of such dignity and excellency. Jesus' love is supreme over any other love in the universe. Edwards goes on to explain it this way. The sweetness of his, Jesus' love, 
depends very much upon the greatness of his excellency. In other words, the value of someone's love is equal to the importance and the greatness of the person doing the loving. I'll repeat that. The value of someone's love is equal to the importance and greatness of the person doing the loving. Now, how important is Jesus? Then how valuable is the love that this supreme person, Jesus Christ, has for us? Think about that this afternoon when you go home. Out of all the problems that we have, and we all have a lot of them, just the, the fact that the creator of the universe loves us as an individual should make everything else just totally meaningless. So I want to dwell a few moments on just how is Jesus supreme. Oh, that Jesus Christ would come to us now by his spirit and reveal himself to us about the supremacy of his deity, equal with God the Father in all his attributes, the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature, infinite, boundless in all his excellencies, the supremacy of his eternal, eternality that makes our minds explode with the unsearchable thought that Christ never had a beginning, but simply is there and always was sheer, absolute reality. While all the universe is fragile, contingent, like a shadow by comparison to his all-defining, ever-existing substance. The supremacy of his never-changing constancy in all his virtues and all his character, all his commitments, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, forever. He never changes. The supremacy of his knowledge that fills the universe and all the information on the internet is not enough to fill even a little thimble of his. And quantum physics seems like a first-grade reader. The supremacy of his wisdom that's never been perplexed by any problem whatsoever and can never be counseled by the wisest of men. The supremacy of his authority over heaven and earth and hell, without whose permission no man and no demon can move one inch, who changes times and seasons, removes kings and sets up kings, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The supremacy of his providence without which not a single bird falls to the ground in the furthest reaches of the Amazon forest, or a single hair of any head turns black or white. The supremacy of his word that moment by moment upholds the universe and holds all in the molecules and atoms in the subatomic world that we have never yet even dreamed of in being. The supremacy of his power to walk on water, cleanse lepers, heal the lame, open the eyes of the blind, cause the deaf to hear, storms to cease, and the dead to rise with a single word or even a thought, Lazarus, come forth, or in your blood, I said, live. The supremacy of his purity, never to sin. He never sinned. He never had one millisecond of a bad attitude or an evil, lustful thought. The supremacy of his trustworthiness. He never breaks a promise. He always keeps his word. Not one promise falls to the ground. We must know the supremacy of his justice to render in due time all moral accounts in the universe 
settled either on the cross or in hell, no injustice will remain when he's finished with his supreme justice. The supremacy of his patience to endure our dullness for decade after decade. Day after day, he brings his son up over Mechanicsburg, this wicked town in a wicked world full of wicked people, and to hold back his final judgment on his land and on the world that many might still repent. The supremacy of his sovereign servant obedience to keep his father's commandments perfectly and then embrace the excruciating pain of the cross willingly for you and me. The supremacy of his meekness and lowliness and tenderness that will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. We must know the supremacy of his wrath which will one day explode against this world with such fierceness that people will call out for the rocks and the mountains to crush them rather than face the wrath of the Lamb. When I see and I hear about the disasters happening across the world and hear people saying, where is your supreme Christ now? I want to be able to answer them, he's in heaven, storing up almighty wrath against a world ignoring his grace and refusing to repent of their sin. And if we don't repent, we will all likewise perish. We must know the supremacy of his grace that gives life to spiritually dead rebels and wakens faith in hell-bound haters of God and justifies the ungodly with his own righteousness. The supremacy of his love that willingly dies for us even while we were sinners and frees us for the ever-increasing joy of worshiping him forever. The supremacy of his own inexhaustible happiness in the fellowship of the Trinity. The infinite power and energy that gave rise to all the universe and will one day be the inheritance of every struggling saint. This is what we were made for. To press on to know the Lord like this. We're living in this little two-second slice of time so that we can know the Lord as who he is and spend eternity with him. We must stop piddling away our time on insignificant things. And if he would grant us to know him like this, it would be but the outskirts of his supremacy. Time would fail to speak of the supremacy of his severity and invincibility and dignity and simplicity and complexity and resoluteness and calmness and depth and courage. If there's anything admirable, if there's anything worthy of praise anywhere in the universe, it's summed up supremely in Jesus Christ. He's supreme in every admirable way over everything, over galaxies and endless reaches of space. He's supreme in his emotions. He can experience the entire realm of emotions simultaneously. He can feel sorrow with those praying to him in sorrow. He can rejoice with those praying to him in praise. He can feel anger for those persecuting the church. He can feel with delight with those who just repented of their sins. All at the same time. He's not like us. He hears billions and billions of the thoughts of everyone who has ever lived since the creation of the world, all at the same time. 
does not forget one of those thoughts for eternity. And he experiences a different emotion for each one of those thoughts. He's supreme over the earth, from the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. He's supreme over all plants and animals, from the peaceful blue whale to the microscopic killer viruses, over all weather and movements of the earth, hurricanes, tornadoes, monsoons, earthquakes, avalanches, floods, snow, rain, sleet, lightning. He's supreme over all chemical processes that heal and destroy, cancer, AIDS, malaria, flu, and all the workings of antibiotics and a thousand healing medicines that we don't deserve. He's supreme over all countries and all governments and all armies, over all terrorists and kidnappings and suicide bombings and beheadings. He's supreme over all nuclear threats. He is supreme over all politics and elections, like the one coming in November. He's supreme over all media and news and entertainment and sports and leisure and over all education and universities and scholarship and science and research, over all businesses and finance and industry and manufacturing and transportation. He is supreme over all the internet and information systems. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, and I rule it with absolute authority. And though it may not seem so now, it's only a matter of time until he's revealed from heaven in flaming fire to give relief to those who trust him and absolutely destroying to the uttermost in conscious torment and righteous vengeance on those who don't trust him. So what does this mean to us for everyday life? What's the application? Well, standing near the edge of Niagara Falls and standing on the edge of a mile deep drop in the Grand Canyon can all have a wonderful supplementary role in satisfying the soul with beauty and majesty. But nothing can take the place of the supremacy of Christ. As Jonathan Edwards said, if you embrace all creation with goodwill, but not Christ, you are infinitely parochial, meaning very limited in understanding. Our hearts were made to be set on fire by Christ, and all creation cannot replace his supremacy. Oh, that God would help us see and savor the supremacy of his Son. Let's give ourselves to this. Let's cultivate this passion. Let's eat and drink and sleep this quest to know the supremacy of Christ. Pray for God to show us these things in his word. Let's immerse ourselves in the Bible every day. We need to use all the means of grace that we can find, like God-centered, Christ-exalting books. And with all that we do, whatever it takes, let's get the all-satisfying supremacy of, of Christ. If we do that, we can set this church on fire. This is the blazing center, and the center, the blazing sun at the center of our universe, the system of our lives, holding the planet of ourselves in orbit. This is the ballast at the bottom of our boats, 
keeping them from being capsized by the waves of temptation and unbelief. This is the foundation that holds up the buildings of our lives so that we can build our lives with purity. Without this, without knowing and embracing the supremacy of Christ in all things, the planets fly apart, the waves overwhelm, and the building will one day fall. We all see lives all around us fall apart every day. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, he, the person who does not build on the supremacy of Christ, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So what are some of the obstacles in knowing Christ in this way? Well, number one probably would be the wrath of God. Isaiah 59.2 says that our iniquities have made a separation between us and our God, and our sins have hidden his face from us. Romans 1, 22 and 23 says that we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Jeremiah 2, 11 and 13, 11 to 13, says that we've exchanged the fountain of living water for empty cisterns that hold no water. We exchange God's glory for something of lesser value because we failed to see God's glory and rejoice in it, making it the supreme objective in our lives. All sin comes from not putting supreme value on the glory of God. This is the very essence of sin. Now these verses make it pretty clear about what sin is and what we're all guilty, that we are all guilty of it. We're not just bad. We're blind to God's beauty, and we're dead to his deepest joys. We're separated from God and under his wrath, apart from trusting Jesus Christ to cleanse us from it and provide his atonement for our sin. We can reverse the wrath and have our eyes open to God's beauty and to his deepest joys. And we can do that by exchanging our man-made idols back for the supremely valuable glory of God that we fell short of in Romans 3.23. We can exchange the empty cisterns for the living water and the bread that satisfies forever. So the first obstacle to remove is the wrath of God. If you are not embracing Jesus for your salvation, won't you please do that today? Please don't wait. As the writer of Hebrews said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you wait for another opportunity, it might be too late before that opportunity comes. Our last day here on earth has already been determined in heaven. Could be today, for all we know. Psalms 139.16 says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You can't divert it. So please don't wait. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord today, please go to him this afternoon. And any one of the elders here can help you with that. Number two, another obstacle to knowing Christ's supremacy is seeing. We're all wearing a veil to some degree. We need to see God more clearly. And only God's able to remove the veil through regeneration. But our part is to struggle to see, 
the seeing is one of our greatest problems. If we can see God in increasing measures, we'll love him more, and we'll realize more of his spirit, we'll be able to see more value in God than in sin. And I think 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that. We need to immerse ourselves in the Bible. We need to take each sentence apart, each word, strive to understand it, read Christ-exalting books, anything by Jonathan Edwards, for example. You expected that, didn't you? Please strive with me to know all that we can to know of his supremacy in this life. Number three, another obstacle is not taking enough time. To be able to see takes time and attention. Both are lacking in today's world. world yeah, world. Mouth is dry. One definition of attention is focused mental engagement on a particular item of information. Now, it's never been harder to pay attention than it is right now, today. Listen to this. This came from TechCrunch.com, people who do studies on this stuff. Humans create as much information in two days now as we did from the dawn of man through 2003. We create as much information in two days now as we did from the dawn of man through 2003. They say the average adult in the West wades through the equivalent of 174 newspapers worth of information per day. Now, when I read that, uh, I think I got an email or I saw it on Facebook or something. It reminded me of the verse, Daniel 12:4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Might this not mean that we might be in the very last days? We're increasingly consuming information in bites, not meals. And this is conditioning us. But here's my point. A wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. And a poverty of attention is spiritually dangerous. The writer of Hebrews warns us, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. It's Hebrews 2.1. Now, drift is a fascinating word, and I'm not sure, but I think it's the only place it's used in the Bible. It's a Greek word that means to float by or drift past as a ship, or to flow past as a river, figuratively, to slip away, suggesting a gradual and almost unnoticed movement past a certain point. Now, this verse in Hebrews reminds me of the frog in the kettle story. You're probably all familiar with it, but I'll reiterate it again. That there's a story that if you put a frog in a kettle of cold water and put a fire under it, it will heat so gradually that the frog won't jump out. He'll stay in the water and eventually cook to his death because he just did not notice that the water kept getting hotter and hotter. We are the exact same way when we drift from Jesus. We get further and further and don't realize it. So hear this. Less attention 
may result in our drifting away. Hebrews 2.1 again. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. We 21st century Western Christians should tremble at this. We have so many distractions. That's why we need to find the time to read and study and pray and meditate on the scriptures and on Christ-exalting books in order to realize and satisfy a deep thirst for the supremacy of God and be ignited to be the torch that sets everyone around us on fire. Time shows no favoritism. Everybody has the same amount of time. What your priorities are and what you do with your time is what makes the difference. Whatever the demands are on your time, if you care about learning to know God, your life will have to be one of what we call systematic neglect. The more responsibilities that are possible, the more neglect you will systematically have to engage in. You'll have to decide the few things on this earth that you would like to do and be ruthless in not doing hundreds and hundreds of other good things. Put every unnecessary thing aside to reach the goal of knowing Christ and his supremacy. In closing, if there's one point of this message, it's this. Exchange whatever is in your life right now that's not worthy of Jesus with the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Exchange whatever's in your life right now that's keeping you from enjoying and appreciating the supremacy of Christ. Exchange it for Jesus. Whatever you're struggling with, trade it for Jesus. Sell it and buy Jesus. I use that term buy Jesus because Jonathan Zabolski, when he was here a couple of months ago, said that we can't just give up a sin. We must exchange it for something of higher value. So we either can, must sell it or buy something of higher value. He's right. Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Yes, Jesus is talking about salvation here, mainly. But that includes sanctification also, the whole journey to the kingdom. The Apostle Paul had the same idea. He wrote in Colossians about what Dee and I call bootstrap Christianity. That Nike philosophy of just do it doesn't work. It doesn't change the heart. Changing the deed without changing the heart is worthless. Change the heart first, and the deed will take care of itself. Listen to Colossians 2.23 to chapter 3.2, eliminating the barrier between the chapter division. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, 
but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. There's the answer. The weapon to fight the God of this world with is to find ways to see God more clearly. If we see God in increasing measures, we'll overcome unbelief. We'll love him more, realize more of his spirit, and be able to see more value in God than in sin through our love for him. Thomas Chalmers, who many of you are probably familiar with, uh, a Scottish pastor and theologian, called this the expulsive power of a new affection. Expulsive means to force out. So increased affections for God will force out sin in our lives. Trade the sin for the higher value of God. Seeing is our greatest problem. I like what A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Pursuit of God. While we are looking at God, we do not see ourselves. The man who has struggled to purify himself and has had nothing but repeated failures will experience real relief when he stops tinkering with his soul and looks away to the perfect one. While he looks at Christ, the very things he has so long been trying to do will be getting done within him. And just a few pages later in the same book, he says, <coughs> Let the seeking man reach a place where life and lips join to say continually, Be thou exalted, and a thousand minor problems will be solved at once. His Christian life ceases to be the complicated thing that it had been before and becomes the very essence of simplicity. So won't you, along with me, make a commitment to bring the supremacy of Christ into every single thing in your life? Every newscast, every movie you watch, every book you read, every newspaper or magazine you read, every circumstance that comes into your life, ask yourself, how does the supremacy of Christ relate to this? Your life will never be the same again. Fears and doubts will no longer haunt you. Depression will lose its grip on you. Worry and anxiety will flee away. Become like the Apostle Paul who said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3.8 The things of this earth will grow strangely dim and you will find a renewed hope in the coming kingdom. Jesus' supremacy will gradually become always in the forefront of your mind and you will be happier than you've ever been in your entire life. I'm speaking from experience. This supreme Jesus is coming back real soon, if I'm reading the signs correctly. Let's be ready to marvel at the supremacy when he comes. Let's be ready to recognize him when he comes. I'll leave you with Isaiah 45, 6 and 7. 
that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Don't wait until tomorrow. Start today. Bring the supremacy of Christ into every single thing in your life. You'll never be the same.